the Recovery Executive Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic consulting and marketing firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment. Today we're speaking with Harry Nelson, and I'm very excited to have Harry on. Most of you probably know him. He is one of the leading legal professionals in the field of behavioral health. And so we're going to be walking through a lot of the changing landscape that is going on, as well as specifics on do's and don'ts. But before that, I want to hear from our wonderful sponsors, Soberlink. Hundreds of treatment programs are already using technology to improve patient outcomes. Is yours one of them? If not, it's time to upgrade with Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system. Soberlink keeps AUD clients engaged and instills accountability to improve your clients' outcomes. But don't take my word for it. See for yourself by signing up for a risk-free, exclusive pilot program. Just email info at soberlink.com. That's info, I-N-F-O at soberlink, S-O-B-E-R-L-I-N-K.com, and mention the Recovery Executive Podcast to get started. Harry is actually, uh, I originally met him through Andrew Martin, and they used to work together through the Behavioral Health Association of Providers, which I'm actually a board advisor for. They're an organization committed to ethical uh, marketing and ethical treatment, as well as just uh, support of the field overall, lobbying at the state and the federal level to make sure the voices of addiction treatment providers across the country are heard in decisions that are being made in the state and nation's capitals. And Harry obviously one, runs one of the largest law firms dedicated to behavioral health and is just a wealth of information. He's been in the space for a long time. He's been in healthcare for a long time before that. So has all of this knowledge around what good healthcare practice looks like and identifying the trends, you know, as we've seen them come up through other branches of healthcare and now they're coming up through behavioral health in very similar ways. He's able to bring that knowledge to bear. But I, I don't know if I know anyone else uh, on the legal end of things that has as much depth of insight as he does into what works and what doesn't, what's legal and what's not. And just the complexities because healthcare law is very, very different. And then on top of that, behavioral healthcare law is generally different from overall healthcare. So if you don't have someone with that specific background, you're often just given bad advice or left in the dust. So we have a really good, robust conversation around the landscape, around what reshaping the field is and how that's happening, and just some of the, the things to be careful of out there, you know, because sometimes people aren't quite sure of the laws. They're complex. There's a lot of them, and it's very, very hard to know them all unless you have someone like uh, Harry and his team on your side. So with that, let's jump into the conversation. Hi, Harry. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Can you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your firm? Uh, I'm 52. I, uh, uh, married four kids and I am, uh, I've spent the last, uh, 26 years of my life uh, doing healthcare regulatory, uh, work, legal work, which, which basically means I work for healthcare providers heavily involved in, uh, uh, behavioral health and digital health, both problem solving, uh, with people before issues come up and after. And, um, I've been involved in starting a number of, of, uh, businesses over the years 
including uh, the law firm that I currently uh, uh, lead called Nelson Hardeman, which is about 30 lawyers in L.A. Uh, doing the same kind of work. And you guys are specifically focused on healthcare, with another primary focus on behavioral health, correct? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, yeah I, when I started my career in the early 90s, I was doing hospital work and senior care facility work. And when I came out to California in 2001, I started I started working with a lot of doctors and mental health professionals, and I, I began the journey that led me into doing a lot of work in addiction treatment, mental health, and other kinds of behavioral is- issues, and that, that became a real passion for me. But as a whole, as a our, our firm, you know, w- the way we look at the world, uh, uh, we sort of look through the lens of healthcare involves the same kind of issues, you know, uh, uh, what kind of license do I need to operate this business or do I need as an individual to do the work I want to do? How do I, what are the operational rules I have to follow in terms of safety and privacy? And how do I get paid for the work I do? Those are kind of, so I, those, those are different if you're in, uh, if you're a pharmacist uh, than if you're uh, an addiction treatment counselor, but, um, but it's the same whole ball of wax. So, so we kind of think of it in that way and cover the spectrum in that way. Great. And one of the reasons I really admire your work and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here is it's not just the the litigation or the legal end of things that you're working on, but you also have, like you said, a strong passion for the space. And you even started an organization uh, not too long ago called the Behavioral Health Association of Providers, which you know I provide some board advising on. But can you just talk a little bit about you know your passion and that organization as well? Sure. So I'd say two things. First, um, you know, my my passion comes from a place I got to a certain point in my work, uh, like many people, where I had I felt like I had gotten to know what I was doing and I felt good about it. But I also felt like it wasn't changing the world. I was giving good advice to people. I was I had the satisfaction of, you know, project, good project, one project after another. But I didn't feel like I was sometimes as a lawyer, it can feel like you're on the sideline and you're not really impacting and actually making the system better improving care and addressing issues in a way that that actually helps people who need help and i started feeling like it was that that just felt like a a, something i needed to change i needed to i i I wanted to be able to look back and say that we actually had made some difference in the world that i had made some difference in kind of making addiction treatment more accessible safer and better and so i started trying to use the work in that way the other thing that i noticed was as a lawyer you know the the the, the it, sometimes people the way we that law firms and lawyers like me work when we charge on an hourly basis, we often just get brought in after there's a problem when there's like an acute issue that needs attention, and often the most many many problems in the world don't get solved well that way, right? They could be addressed preventively, and uh, and frankly they need long-term proactive solutions, and uh, and not everybody can afford who needs help can afford to pay. Um, the rates that that we charge as lawyers. So so I became passionate about looking for another way to get information out there and and to deliver educational information, guidance, and to translate some of the obscure uh, and difficult to navigate issues, the confusing issues that we deal with as lawyers, and to put it out there. So I created uh, what's now called the Behavioral Health Association of Providers. Uh, we it, when it began, it was the American Addiction Treatment Association as a way to put out more resources and start sharing information, um, you know, in a way that more people could access throughout the behavioral health and addiction treatment community. Um, and it's, it's a work in progress, but I've been really gratified with uh, um, the way that we've been able to help people understand and, and work better through some of the challenges that the industry has seen. 
Yeah, I really appreciate that work, Abby, because you have a, a similar perspective as I do, where it's like, how do we reshape the field for the better overall? You know, rather than you said, just operating a company and doing some some services for clients, we take it above and beyond that. And I love that. And, you know, even in the um, through BHAP or the Behavioral Health Association providers, you guys have a particular focus on marketing, obviously, um, in one of your certifications. So you have that certification of addiction treatment marketing, which I took, I don't know, about a year ago, I think I completed that. Um, but it's a fabulous resource. It's great information. It's very well done, you know, in, in a field that I think acutely needed it, right? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 so I feel really... That's a project that I'm particularly proud of. You know, what, what I noticed was um, the issues that have come up in addiction treatment in the last five, ten years around lab, originally lab services and marketing for, you know, and the relationships around that. And then for patients, they are kind of, for me, they sort of echo uh, issues that got tackled in hospitals and in other settings of healthcare and medical clinics you know, 20, 30 years ago. And the reality is that part of what happened here is that with the Affordable Care Act, uh, you know, addiction treatment and behavioral health were kind of forced into a healthcare system that, that, that the field wasn't ready for. And so in a period before there was insurance, there was, you know, all, uh, uh, people, people could engage in all kinds of practices. And frankly, nobody was in the government was paying attention. But as soon as insurance dollars were available, there was enormous scrutiny. And what I noticed was that the industry wasn't sensitized to these issues that we were familiar with from working in these other healthcare settings. And so I became very passionate that we needed to help create standards and create an educational curriculum and a certification so that people could actually, facilities, uh, operators could, could be, and marketers could, could know that they were, you know, where the lines were and how to handle these different situations. And um, yeah, it's, it's been, that's been one particular project that we undertook that I'm really uh, I, I feel has made it uh, is making a difference and and that I'm very proud of. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic fantastic resource and you know I mean for any listeners out there that aren't familiar with it, I would definitely check out the website and check out that certification. It's great for compliance, it's great for business development teams and, and even just some of the the simpler regulations around HIPAA and everything. Um, but also that focus on ethics. So again, going above and beyond just what were the legalities here, but you know, really how do we think about this from an ethical perspective and putting patients first and what's best for patients, you know, above and beyond what the letter of the law may say. Yeah, I, I would say, you know what I would say when I, this is my, the way that I approach this, the way I think about it, I've come to think about it over the years is a lot of times people think about doing things ethically as like, um, as kind of a necessary evil right that you know there that it's like a, it's kind of like a, a a grudge purchase something that you have to do you, you know something that you you do it you do it but you don't it doesn't help necessarily help your business and what i've what i've learned it's very hard to make a sale to people to just be ethical for the sake of being ethical but what i've really what i've learned again in other healthcare settings and what i think really applies here is that the road to ultimate success and growth uh is is to get out of this mode of thinking about it as What's the minimum I need to do to not get in trouble? And instead to really, that's like a fear-driven approach, I think. And instead to really think strategically uh, about the way that your integrity as an, oper as, an, as an organization really is the driver of your growth, right? That you can't, you can't if, you, if you're doing things at the absolute minimum, you can't possibly level, you can't possibly be delivering the highest quality service, and you can't possibly be competing at the highest level. And I, so I really think that um, for me, part of what we were trying to do is to get people out of the place of 
being afraid of these issues and instead really giving people, giving organizations, giving marketers the tools to be strategic and smart and, and hopefully, you know, build stronger, uh, stronger programs. Yeah. I mean, we see that all the time still, you know, going to a provider and there's something going on with the way that they're doing promissory notes or the way that they have their sober living structured, you know, in almost a Florida model. Um, and there's a lot of legal issues and questions that come up with the way that it's done. And sometimes they're going through all these legal convolutions and they have these, you know, large forms that they've hired, you know, firms to provide for them that says technically we're, we're you know, following the letter of the law. Um, but at the end of the day, they're really you know, it's really gray. And then the question mark comes in is like, well, how how committed are you to providing, you know, patient first centers of care? How provided or how committed are you to being an ethical provider if you're really just trying to toe the line and get away with as much as possible? You know, it just creates a bad experience for staff, for uh, community partners, anything that ultimately gets reflected down into the patients, which will then eventually affect the, the bottom line in the business. Yeah, 100%. I, I think uh, there's a lot of short-term thinking and a lot of, I, I, honestly, I think sometimes a lot of magical thinking where people <laughs> are really, you know, in, engaged in relationships that if you took a step back uh, are not, you know, are just things that are only lasting because the government doesn't have enough resources to take on everyone who's violating the law, right? The insurance companies haven't gotten there yet. But I think if people think, are, are, are start really thinking in terms of what am I, is what I'm doing is this a long-term strategy? Uh, um, I think a lot of these practices would fade away. Unfortunately, I think uh, uh, there are still too many organizations that are, you know, surviving on the basis of things that are practices that are, uh, you could say, are are unethical or illegal or or, or suboptimal at a minimum in, in, <laughs> in a gray area. And um, we're always trying to work with with people to figure out how to get stronger uh, and get beyond uh, those kind of those kind of things. Yeah, I think that's taken, you know, as I've said on the show multiple times, there, there's a need for maturity in the space, uh, just from a business and operations angle, you know, where that short termism was, was so constant, you know, really what you want to do if you want to have a good business, I need to look and say, how am I going to be here 10 years from now? And if the operations or the legal framework or whatever I'm doing is just, you know, viable you know, for the foreseeable future until someone cracks down or someone catches us. I mean, that that's not a sustainable business operation. You know, you have to think smarter than that and you have to build your business to survive in an environment that's going to be there, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now. Uh, otherwise, it's just, it just doesn't make sense and it usually end up losing money. Um, even though people don't think they will, they do. No, I, I think you, 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 what you just said is something really important that, that, that really drives my thinking, which is, you know, this is a space in, in transformation. Things are have things that basically, you know, addiction treatment and behavioral health have been kind of forced into this system, but it's it, the, it, the, the pace of change is coming quicker and quicker. And unless people are adapting, um, you know, there's no, you're not going to, you don't stand a chance. So yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, one thing I think we can get into right away is, I mean, Sometimes people think, I think over the past year or two, you know, it's all, there's been all this focus on ethics and, you know, laws coming into place around patient brokering, but a lot of it's still happening. I mean, we literally just had a call from a provider two weeks ago that, you know, I said, well, what are you guys currently doing for marketing? And they're like, oh, we just pay for a couple patients a month from some call center in the Midwest. I'm like, well, you can't do that. That's illegal, right? And they're, <laughs> and th these guys were honestly shocked. Um, they're like, what do you mean that's illegal? How, how is that possible? They had just opened up like six months ago. 
but we still get those calls and that stuff is still happening and there are still people out there selling you know the calls or the patients and they're trying to find ways around it you know in terms of a way that they structure the company or, or the you know the legal documents they put on paper that are different from maybe the conversations that they're having with people but there's still desperation from providers as well and so you have these people that are, are you know either reaching out to it knowingly or unknowingly so maybe you can kind of comment on what you're seeing from the legal landscape end of things in terms of you know are you still seeing some of these abuses are you still seeing some things that are outright illegal you know occurring and how common would you say that is yeah so you know what we what we see is um yeah first of all yeah i i agree i, I see a lot still an enormous amount of um, bad behavior of, of of relationships where people in many cases you know there's a there's some people who just aren't aware and some people who um, who are aware but are just sort of addicted, so to speak, to the <laughs> yeah. to the money and yeah. and not willing to make a change. And you know, I what I what I what always shocks me is the way that uh, you know the government the, the government will show us that they are focused on a particular fraud, and yet you still have people who are jumping in and committing that same fraud. So, like I would have thought, you know, we were, you know, I started doing seeing cases involving um, urine drug. Uh, testing related fraud, right? Where a, a lab marketer was paying a, 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 a facility. Like I thought, I would have thought that stuff had wound down because everybody had seen how many lab marketers, how many uh, facility owners had gotten criminally prosecuted for it. Um, but it's not stopping at all. Uh, there still are always, there's always somebody out there who's willing to push um, the envelope. And I think, I think it's a sign that some cases of just people aren't keeping up with information and there and then also um, and, and, and there's some that's financial desperation but what's also interesting is you know people will stumble onto new ideas so you know again a few years ago that it was people the, the lab marketer said hey instead of me just giving paying you for referring over those tests I'll I'll give you an investment interest in a you know in this venture and as if that was going to make a difference right uh, uh, that you're, you know, you, I'm still having a, an exchange. And, and today we see, for example, we see a lot of the um, focus has now shifted to, um, you know, uh, self-funded employer plans as kind of a new territory where, um, where you can, if you can drive business to facilities through self-funded employer plans, there are folks who are, you know, figuring out how to drive uh, um, referral fees for, for, for that traffic. So, People are constantly finding new things and thinking that they're um, creative. I, I, I fault, you know. I, I, by the way, I, I will just I will fault the lawyers. I think there are a lot of there are a lot of people out there who are not getting good advice, uh, and sometimes they're not asking for advice, and they're not or they're asking the wrong people. But there are plenty of I've seen over and over again, you know, situations where a new uh, scenario pops up and a new a new idea pops up, and 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 lawyers uh, will will bless it until the point where the government actually cracks down on it. And I think it's very, it can be very, very confusing. Um, but so I think, I think we really need to make an effort within the addiction treatment, you know, provider community to make sure people are up to speed on what's happening and to think about, you know, just be, where's the government today? Where's the government going to be a year from now? And if you, if you think like that, if you put yourself in the position of the government, you know, it's, it's not hard to spot, the problems, and it is true that the government can't, never is going to have enough resources to prosecute everybody. But the problem, you know, the, the, whether it's worth taking the risk of, of, of uh, you know, holding your breath, I, I don't know. I don't know anybody who wants to uh, live like that or operate their business like that. 
Yeah, it's constantly surprising to me. I mean, even with the patient brokering end that we still see a lot of, you know, some of it's just shifted. Sometimes they take the patient brokering and, and they put them on, you know, some kind of monthly contract. We've seen them renamed as sober escorts or interventionists and trying to get around the laws that way. You know, so rather than getting their business in order, you know, and really coming up with a real long term strategy, people are just playing this cat and mouse game and trying to figure out how to game the system. It's such a such a level of short termism that it's just silly to me. But I, I just think some people are, like you said, addicted to it. Some um, it's just what they've known. So that that's what they continue to do. And I think, too, like what we see on the marketing end is, you know, really building a business takes a lot of time and work, right? You can't just flip on a switch, pay someone and bring patients in your door. So when you really have to invest the money and that's costing you three to six months, right? I mean, just at a minimum to start building a real business and building real marketing campaigns that are effective, that's not a time frame that um, some of the more immature players in the space are willing to invest. And that's where I think a lot of people run into a wall is they just they don't realize how difficult it really is to build a quality business that's differentiated from competitors in the space. No, I, I agree with your point. I had on the last issue, I, I was just going to share, you know, I, I had a case recently where, and this, this kind of is a phenomenon that happens a lot, but where there was a government, the, there was a, a government inquiry of uh, the same one, you know, uh, th- three different uh, treatment providers who were, who were all engaged in, working who were basically getting uh, um, monies from uh, for referring lab tests and w- one of the three facility uh, owners got criminally prosecuted one of them entered into a civil settlement to just repay funds and one of them managed to you know by the grace of god just avoid you know got got sort of identified clearly was seen but somehow the case settled without basically went forward without them being involved in it and I don't know, I was just going to say it, like, you never know which of those three people you're going to be. <laughs> um, but I see that kind of phenomenon all the time. But and, and I agree with your point. I think I think if you're going to be involved in this, you really need to be thinking about what's it going to take to, to how long is it going to take me to actually get up and running? Uh, what, what are the resources I'm going to need? And, and also, even to me, equally importantly, is where is the business going? What is it going to look like, you know, uh, um, in terms of the uh, modality of care? In terms of where the insurance companies are going to be and the need to be in network versus out of network, you know, it's it's um, it's a lot of I see a, a lot of folks who are just, you know, happy with how the system is working today and not thinking about how uh, how it's changing. And it's none of it is a surprise because we can see from the government, from the insurance companies, you know, we can see where things are heading. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah, and looking at what the payers want, what community stakeholders want, you know, what what the consumer or the patient wants. All of it has radically changed, and I'd say the most business that we get as an operational consulting marketing company is from people that were just kind of rusty on laurels. And you know, the business came in, calls came in, uh, didn't have a problem for years, and then suddenly everything changed, and they have not adapted. They have not changed. They're still sitting there kind of confused as to why the world has changed around them and they're struggling rather than trying to figure out how to adapt to it, you know, so then we go in and we, we help them adapt. But I think that's, that's a constant issue that keeps coming up and we see it in a lot of our clients is they just don't really understand, you know, what to do. And because there wasn't a, a, a need to focus on the business before, right? It just kind of worked. It, it, you didn't have to run lean. You didn't have to have good marketing. You didn't have to have a good reputation or differentiated clinical care, right? Because you didn't have to have that, none of it was developed, and now that you need all of it, <laughs> it becomes a challenge for providers. 
A hundred percent. Yeah. It's kind of, look, I, I also, you know, I, I see that phenomenon throughout healthcare, but like basically like if you look back, people, you don't always know what moment of time you're in. So in, yeah, we saw there was a period of 2013, 14, 15, where, you know, it, you could, you didn't have to do very much. You could open up a residential facility. The rates of reimbursement were great. Um, the standards, the expectations in terms of documentation uh, uh, were not particularly stringent. And then of course, what always happens is it gets tougher and tougher and things shift. And, and insurance companies start putting more and more limits because they're trying to control the flow of services, right? We started seeing much more of a challenge for people, the, the out-of-network, in-network questions. We started seeing challenges around uh, um, the allocation that the insurance companies want to support of outpatient versus, versus residential. Uh, and we, we, you know, and it's always like that. There's always this cycle where the payers are trying to control the flow of claims, and because they hold the money, they have they have real power uh, over providers, and it's not always power that's used well. But if you're not paying attention to how things are changing, and you're just, if you're assuming that everything's going to stay the same, you are just a sitting duck. Correct. Yeah. So you on that note, how have you seen the legal landscape evolve over the years? I mean, you kind of brought some of it up, but if you just kind of want to give us that overview. Yeah. I mean, what I see happening much, much more is uh, addiction treatment is kind of slowly harmonizing with the rest of healthcare. And what I mean by that is our healthcare system broadly has been in a period of transformation that was, it was, you could say that it was going on before the Affordable Care Act, but very much in my view, the Affordable Care Act really has been driving um, a, uh, a, a some you know fundamental principles that um, you know that that all of that that all of healthcare is going through. So one of those uh, challenges has been uh, one of those has been a continuous pressure to um, for better management of the setting of care, and in particular reducing uh, putting delivering care in the lowest acuity setting. So um, uh, so that's been one issue. Um, has been, you know, a big issue has been um, this desire to not, you know, for example, the re- in the rest of healthcare, we've seen it by new all these rules on hospitals that have made it harder and harder for hospitals to uh, to take patients in. Hospitals, you know, 20 years ago operated like hotels. If a hospital had uh, 75% of its beds full, it was making doing doing really well. If it had a 25% of its beds full, not so much. And so, uh, you know, it, it was just in the early days of addiction treatment and res- and behavioral health. Uh, I mean, I mean, like a decade ago, we saw, a di- you know, residential treatment was easy, and what we're slowly seeing is this high. The the, the payers are putting higher and higher criteria, uh, uh, coverage criteria, more and more specific documentation to try to limit those services and force things into outpatient and um, and even to telehealth, um, so that there's they can deli- so that care can be delivered at lower cost. So that's one big issue. The other thing that we see happening is on the documentation and the um, information being provided, we, we're seeing a lot of pressure on organizations to, uh, to, to not only have their data be interoperable where other providers can see it, but just to integrate further and to work within a, a system, a larger system, and not be so siloed. And again, we've seen that dynamic playing out between uh, uh, hospitals and physician groups where they've had to, for example, we've seen programs like bundled payment where um, where, where, where there has to be a lot more care given to how much money is going to be spent on uh, the patient in the surgery, in the pre, pre-surgical work, and the post-surgical work. We've seen it with hospitals and nursing homes over the need to manage patients better and avoid hospitalizations and, and, lengths of, and, and, and manage lengths of stay. 
and levels of therapy. And we're seeing it in behavioral health. We're seeing that's a pressure point where that's where things are also going, where staying siloed and just getting to bill for the detox or the residential stay or the IOP, you know, uh, uh, as a standalone operation is going to be harder and harder because there's going to be pressure to fit and to integrate into a broader uh, um, ongoing continuum of care for patients. And I think the providers who are uh, are, are, are thinking about that are going to be ahead. And then finally, I would say that, you know, the, there's this continuous pressure. A lot of the behavioral health and addiction treatment space has thri- thrived in the last decade in an out-of-network environment. Um, and I think that's getting harder and harder because you know, there's so much pressure to create these uh, uh, provider networks that are contracted together. And I just think that's going to continue. That's been a trend within healthcare. It's getting tougher and tougher. Um, you know, there's been more and more cost control pressure coming down, um, and 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 uh, um, I think that's going to that's another way. You, we, there's other things we can say. There's a lot to say about how it's changing, but I think fundamentally, uh, behavioral health is basically being forced to, to to reshape itself to fit within that the healthcare landscape, and and, and those are three important ways. Uh, but I, we could come up with a lot more. But that's that's going to be the broad theme of the next uh, of the next 20 years. Yeah, I would second both of those sentiments. I mean, we see that in the conversations I have with the higher ups at the payers. You know, they do not want to be paying for residential care for most of the time. Um, they want to see those lower cost outpatient services. And even from a clinical standpoint, they've seen it better. And we're still seeing providers fight it, right? You know, um, sometimes we'll get the comment that, well, longer care is better or more care is better. And that's not necessarily the case. Sure, length of time is important, but that doesn't mean it has to be residential, right? It can be in um, lower levels of care or outpatient services. And the out-of-network thing is the same. Like payers, they hate having someone go one place for detox and another place for res, another place for PHP or IOP. Like they actively, you know, they've told me personally, like we don't want to see this. So if you're not paying attention to some of those trends, um, you're going to get left behind. You know, as we kind of had this whole conversation here, the payers are moving in a certain direction. The stakeholders are moving in a certain direction. And yes, you might have figured out how to make it work right now. And, and maybe everyone else around you is struggling and you're kind of this outlier that's still making it work. But it's not going to be the case in five years. So, you know, do you want to be prepared to be in business for five years from now? Or do you just want to kind of milk what you've got and then, you know, struggle a year from now is a choice I think most providers no, need to be making. I, I was, I was going to add one other point. I agree with, with everything you're saying. The, 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 the big other big shift, and I think COVID – 19 has really this crisis has accelerated it is we've been seeing a growing shift around the country uh, of towards Medicaid uh, uh, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens in terms of federal health programs but we just we've now seen upwards of 20 million Americans filing unemployment claims so what that means is you know we've been living in a time when roughly half of America was covered by employer there was a, a, a small, a little under 50% covered by uh, employer-sponsored plans, and um, a small chunk of people with commercial, uh, uh, you know, purchase, you know, private plans, per, like purchased on the exchanges, and then, uh, and then 40-something percent covered by uh, by these fe- the various federal health programs. And what what this crisis is going to do is is shrink the pool of people who have jobs that give them insurance, which are often the people who have high-quality insurance that has fueled the market. That's a shrinking slice of the pie, and what's and the, and the growing slice of the pie is going to be this this Medicaid population, 
which is um, a really different place for addiction, for, you know, for behavioral health and addiction treatment providers to uh, participate, right? It's an area that pays a lot, covers a lot of people, but pays at much, much lower rates with a lot of serious program requirements. And so I think that's, uh, that's going to be, I, I, my view is that, that the, the kind of uh, sweet spot, if you will, that people occupy the elite programs are going to be comp- more and more competitive with each other for those uh, um, high, you know, high revenue patients. And instead, there's going to be more and more opportunity in the uh, in, in the Medicaid market, which is going to mean playing in a managed care space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just did an analysis a couple of weeks ago and ran a bunch of um, kind of reports and looked at some statistical analyses from Congress and other places. And just looking at the claims data, you know, we found that only about 1.5% of uh, commercially insured patients actually use their policies for addiction treatment um, or SUD needs. Comparing that to Medicaid and Medicare, where you have seven to eight percent of patients using their policies for such, so you have a seven to eight time bigger market in Medicaid um, just based on the people who are using the policies, and then when you break it down further in res versus outpatient versus going to like a private therapist, for example, you find that the vast majority of people actually go to private therapists or they go to some kind of outpatient treatment. So the demand for res is really really small, and then the demand for res within the commercial payer market is incredibly small. So you have all these people that built these businesses on top of it, but the the supply is more than the demand at this point, almost by two x in terms of what we've been able to determine. That's so interesting. That's really interesting data. I, I and yeah, it aligns with this, and I personally think it's going to get much much worse. Um, it, it, you know, as a as a part of the fallout of this uh, this crisis. Yeah, I, I'd agree. What about the some kind of the new laws that have been coming out? So we have like the Care Support Act, for example. You know, what are things that providers need to be aware around the those new um, laws? So. So in the short term, there are. It's very important to look at the stimulus uh, bills, care, the Care Support Act. There are. There's definitely funds around uh, to help providers in the short term, um, and I think. And there's. I think uh, we're seeing um, a lot of providers take advantage of those funds, uh, and it's. It's. Uh, um, and I think there. And my. What I've been hearing is that more of them are going to be coming. But again, that's mostly for people who are. You know, it's funds for people who are participating in government, uh, uh, for government. Pro, you know, uh, programs. Um, we have we've had a lot of clients participating in the uh, PPP loan programs, um, which have been uh, invaluable to help people pay their uh, to keep their workforce intact, to pay utilities and rent um, and, uh, and and mortgage interest. So those are those funds uh, uh, and and are are huge short-term benefit. In the long term, some of the laws that we're tracking uh, that we expect to uh, to pass, uh, we d- I definitely think there will be more public funding laws. But one thing that we're watching, we're tracking is um, a is the risk of a federal uh, balance billing or surprise billing law, more consumer protection laws, because um, this issue has been a hot issue for a while. But even in this crisis, there's been more attention to uh, patients getting hit with large bills, and um, and we're expecting to see some some protection there. Um, I think I think that we are going to see um, some changes to uh, e- further facilitate more. Uh, and put pressure for more medication-assisted treatment. Um, and my hope is that we're going to see some legislation to support things like recovery coaching and recovery housing, you know, that have been elements that have not, don't really match up with what we see in other parts of healthcare, uh, where, but are such important uh, determinants in uh, supporting people in, in treatment. So 
Um, I, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what else uh, comes out of this. Um, but and obviously a huge, huge question: what's going to happen in terms of Congress in uh, and and the administration in November, which is really going to uh, uh, shape, uh, you know, the the, the 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 what's ahead of us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a personal, you know, kind of random comment there, but yeah, the surprise Billy, I mean, that still gets it. We see it with patients, you know, when we're talking to patients, they'll say they got a surprise bill from a treatment provider of, you know, 10, $20,000. And they're like, well, what is this? You know, they don't know where it came from. Um, but I just recently had an experience with a hospital last summer, you know, we took my daughter, she fell off her bike and had to go get stitches in her chin. And we got billed by the, um, apparently the contracted, uh, doctor that was the office. And so we paid that bill. You know, and then like three weeks later, a bill came from the hospital <laughs> for twice as much, you know, for apparently facility use fees. And we're like, what in the, you know, what's going on here? It, yeah. So that we're, by the way, we're seeing already at the state level a lot. A lot of times it's very important to pay attention not only to the laws getting passed in Washington, but at the state, at the state level, we've seen this issue has really been picking up speed in the states. Um, and there's been a more, a greater, fo- a long, for a long time, the focus was on hospital emergency room bills. There's a much bigger focus now on, um, on on not only physician care but on behavioral health um, behavioral health care, and I think we're going to see what we're seeing is basically, you know, the uh, uh, f- to a large extent the whole issue of patient responsibility, financial responsibility, has been ignored for a long time, and uh, um, you know, patient the patient uh, uh, what's it called the uh, cost sharing uh, pieces, the deductible, the coinsurance, and so on, have been pieces that have in, in addiction treatment people have ignored and unfortunately and, and I think what we're going to see is um, much more pressure on providers uh, from 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 decreasing uh, um, insurance benefit to, uh, uh, to 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 really get money out of patients which is really a challenge uh, in addiction treatment yeah yeah it's definitely not easy but something that you know we constantly consult on clients with and you know trying to get them to put some kind of process in place to provide financing or collections and just having that conversation with patients that saying hey you actually owe this which is tough and you can speak to this but you know you still have providers that are waiving deductibles and will outright tell a patient on the phone that they're going to waive the deductible um you know in order to attract patients but maybe you kind of want to walk through some of those current pitfalls legally that you still see look it's 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 very, very, it's a big, this is a big issue. This is actually something I'm proud of that we put together a few years ago. Uh, we put something together called the Patient Financial Responsibility Toolkit to explain these issues. And so, um, yeah, so I constantly am hearing from addiction treatment programs that uh, our competitors are, you know, waiving deductibles, our competitors are waiving coinsurance, our competitors are providing housing. We have to do these things. And it's really, uh, it's, it's, it's very, it's a difficult thing. I'm very, you know, I empathize when people say that because your competitors make your life harder when they're doing things uh, that they're not supposed to do. And, and certainly, you know, not charging the patients these amounts that the insurance companies expect to be charged is a pro- it's a problem. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it can, it, the insurance companies treat it as a fraud and abuse issue. They'll say, you're not, you're interfering with our contract with our, uh, which, which you know, required these things. They'll say you're misstating your your prices because you're you're claiming that this is your price, but you know we're we're only supposed to pay this part of it, and um, and 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 really, we're, what we're paying is the whole price. So the the payers have all these arguments about why why it's a form of fraud. What we've been the solutions that we've uh, uh, we've developed, we've been working on, and we advocated for advocate for and advise people on, have been to find ways to work with patients. So, um, so finding, for example, ways to finance patients, right? 
to uh, to let patient, you know, somebody who's who, or a family that's either financially exhausted or a person who's, you know, struggling uh, uh, to find recovery, letting people, you know, treating, giving, the, advancing those 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 monies for, and and basically letting them pay over time, is one solution and. And recognizing, as long as you do it in a legitimate way, that not everybody's going to be able to fully pay it back, but giving people time to get back on their feet uh, um, is one one possible solution. And then the other is, you know, that we spend a lot of time working on is addressing financial hardship in a way that's consistent with the law in your state. And this is a tricky issue because every state, some states, Florida makes this very, very difficult. California is much more um, uh, 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 flexible on this, but basically trying to come up with a system that reasonably, you know, assess where you really do in a reasonable, thorough and consistent way an analysis of the hardship that a particular patient or family is dealing with and recognize that in the form of a discount um, or a waiver of particular fees. And it has to be done very, very carefully because if you do it, if you do it, if you do it the wrong way, the insurance companies will accuse you of fraud. But um, the thing that we've been really heartened by is that uh, you know we put together this guide through BHAP, and um, and several of our our, our clients uh, and and one of the bill, a billing company took it to some of the large payers. One of them took it to Cigna, another one of them took it to Aetna, and without us even knowing about it. And they came back to us and they said, you know, the, when the insurance company senior people read this, they said this is exactly right. This is exactly what we should be doing. So um, I, it was a good feeling. To know that we, you know, that we we put resource, resources out there, but the the frustration I have is that I think they're only a, known by a, a you know a small handful of people, and we and I think the challenge is how do you get the word out there that there are there's a right way and a wrong way to do this, and you need to learn uh, to do things the right way because when you you know if you if you do them in the wrong way if your if your program if people call your program and and your your staff talks about it in the wrong way. You just are opening up a uh, a can of worms that is hard to uh, hard to close. Yeah, well, I hope this uh, you know podcast here is is one of the tools out there to be able to kind of spread that word, and we can actually include that in the show notes. You know, if you have a link to the resource on the BHAP site or whatever, so definitely send that to me afterwards. I think one of the comments I was going to make too is like, you know, we get the same concerns from clients, especially when we're first starting. But I mean, as everyone, you know, all the listeners know, like we only work with certain providers, right? And we won't work with the provider unless they're committed to doing things the right way. And all of our clients do very well. We have small providers, we have medium size, we have some of the largest providers in the country and they do very well and they do things the right way. So, I mean, we have massive amounts of data, you know, with successful providers, big and small, that they're able to do this and compete and still do things the right way. You know, it doesn't mean you're not going to lose a patient or two here or there, right? That'll happen. Um, but you're, you're still be able to run a successful business and you can do it with the confidence that one, you're doing it right. And two, you know, you're going to be able to run these business processes for the next 20 years, whereas your competitor might have to shut down next month, you know? Yeah. I think, uh, look, I, I, yeah, we, I mean, I, I, it's heartening to see, uh, you know, uh, good programs um, doing the work and succeeding. Um, and uh, um, and you know, my in my business, we I, I, those are the clients that I'm really, you know, the work that I really enjoy is working with those people and problem solving with them. And then we also get a lot of people who have done things the wrong way, and now the government is, um, you know, breathing down their necks. And uh, um, you know, it's tricky. I, I, I really feel like we, I, I, you said, one of the things you said is something that I really resonate with, which is 
I never want to support like window dressing. I don't want to be used as window dressing, right? I don't want to have people use my name and, and say, you know, as a way to insulate their bad practices. But um, unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of folks out there who, who are kind of not even aware that what they're doing is completely uh, backwards and, and, uh, and there's work to have to, that we have to do to kind of help fix it and get them turned around. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and there's people that have started businesses young or just without a lot of background or around all of this th- stuff, you know, and so once they figure it out, they say, okay, well, we need to do this right. And how do we do it? And then they reach out to, you know, people like you to figure that out. Um, and I think that's great. I mean, I, I, I see that as so valuable in the space and we do the same thing where you've got someone that maybe didn't quite do things the right way in the past, but they realized it and they want to figure out how to do it right. And they want to figure out how to do it right and be successful. And so they'll reach out to us. And I mean, that's so much value in the space, right? You're taking a provider that maybe didn't have the best practices in place, but is now turning that around and becoming a quality provider. So not only are you eliminating, you know, bad practices from the space, but you're improving practices for patients and providers, you know, as you move forward. And it's actually a piece that I enjoy (laughs) about the work that we do. Uh, How about some specific questions, just, uh, you know, legal things that come up that people often have question marks on that, I mean, you get every single conference you go to, I always hear them, but let's just kind of start with a a short list. Like, so promissory notes, paying for flights, paying for travel, you know, what's the legalities on that? So promissory notes, I mentioned financing before. So a promissory note is if you use it correctly uh, and you, and you, and you make it real, then it is a, it's a important legal tool in your arsenal um, because it's a way to um, let patients, you know, n- who don't have the resources address whether it's the cost of housing or or travel or, uh, you know, even uh, cost sharing from insurance companies. And so um, the, pro- the challenge is that we see a lot of programs that just, you know, I, for years I would have people who'd say to me, yeah, we, we get clients sign a promissory note. And I, and I would ask, what do you do with it? And they'd say, we, we put it in a drawer. <laughs> And we never look at it again. And and the problem is you got to really explain to clients and do the work to say, this is real. Like we understand that you're in a position where you can't afford to pay this today. And we're gonna have we're gonna give you the opportunity. We're gonna we're gonna cover the cost of your housing, for example. Uh, but we expect you to uh, to pay us back. And so it's the program the, the the programs that are doing it the right way are not just signing the promissory note. They're they're talking to the client and and, and they're they're helping the client figure out. Uh, um, how to start paying it back, giving them, they're giving them time and space to get back on their feet, but they're also, um, you know, treating it as a real thing. And if you do that, I think the promissory note is one of the most powerful um, things that you, that we have to actually address the, this challenge of people not having the money that they need to pay for, uh, for things that the provider can't, can't just give them. What about, you just mentioned housing. So you're running a PHP or an IOP and you have offsite sober living. Um, you know, we've seen providers just waive those fees or, or not charge fees. I shouldn't say waive them. They just didn't charge anything. What were the legalities around that? So this is, you gotta, this is an issue. You've got to look at your specific state because there's a significant difference. Um, I'm really, one of the things I'm really proud of that we were able to contribute to was, was, um, was work by the California Consortium of Addiction Programs and Professionals CCAP to pass, uh, um, you know, the, the, the new law that, uh, um, that allows for, that, that clarifies things in California. So what we know in this area is in all states, it's always a problem if somebody, if, like, if, uh, if somebody is running a, a, a recovery residence, sober living, and they come to you and say, I want to send you this patient, uh, but I want you just to cover the cost of their housing, that's a problem because that's a quid pro quo 
where they're referring you a patient in exchange for you paying for the patient's bed, right? Uh, but, but what the new law in California says is that you can provide housing to people as long as you sign a separate contract uh, and have them pay for it. Um, and what we're seeing, the question, the area that comes up that's very gray is what do you do with these people who can't afford to pay uh, for, their own, uh, for their own housing? So the, to me, the, the first solution is always financing, promissory notes, financial hardship discounts. But it also it has to be driven from it always has to be in a context of you're providing you're, you're doing those things out of compassion for somebody who's already a patient who's thinking about your program, not for in order to get the referral. If you are making those as a promise, whether to the patient or to the referral source and saying, I'm going to cover these things or I'm going to do this in exchange for you sending this patient, then you are in a uh, you're 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 in a, an illegal relationship. And that's that you're basically squarely in the definition of a kickback. So I think we need to find it's really a challenging area because people need housing. Uh, there aren't government funds to provide the housing that people need. And um, so I have I have clients who are you know are do are using um, a, a model of uh, financing are using are giving some uh, discounting for financial hardship. Are, are, are covering some of the cost and understanding that they're not going to get back 100 cents on the dollar from everybody who they, uh, who they finance. Um, and, that, and, and, you know, as long as they're doing it in, in, in a careful, consistent, you know, um, uh, thoughtful way, I, there's, I think it's, we, what we see is that the state authorities are comfortable with it, the insurance companies are comfortable with it, and, it, and it's working. Um, uh, but you've got to be careful in this space because it's an easy way to uh, – to step into a landmine. Yeah, I think what I would ask is, you know, I mean, it's not like you have to charge someone a thousand dollars a month for rent. You know, you can charge them fifty dollars a week, and and yes, it's a cost, but it's probably manageable for a lot of people. I mean, is there anything on the legal end in terms of how much has to be charged? You know, so there there are some states that have uh, fair market value. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know it, it, that raise fair market value as an issue. Um, there's no there's no states that specifically police that uh, that issue. There, the states are always looking at um, you know is there an inducement? Are you inducing people? But I think and I think I think what we're what we're seeing is uh, what I'm saying at least is the emergence of more reasonably priced um, sober living. You know I, what I had seen five years ago was was uh, a lot of very high end sober livings that were getting paid by outpatient programs. You know getting bed bed vouchers covered. For, uh, for for large for, for, for pretty hefty amounts of money and by the way if you have a if you have a I know of people who run um, uh, unlicensed uh, recovery residence housing that is really that, that has high demand and can command uh, uh, big fees and that's great if you if you have a brand where, where you are such a, a well-known and respected provider that, that people are willing to pay your fees that's great the problem is just if you're looking for insurance money to cover, uh, the cost of it and to pay it out of, you know, what you're charging outpatient programs, I think you're on a, um, you know, you're on borrowed time. Yeah. What about uh, price differentiation? So if you offer a highly discounted rate for private or cash pay versus what you're charging the insurance companies? So that's a real trouble spot, right? The insurance companies, if you don't charge the same price to insurance companies that you charge cash pay uh, uh, patient, you, that you charge cash pay patients and the insurance companies learn about it, they will accuse you of fraud and abuse. They they regard it as like a misrepresentation of the price because you told them one price, and you told uh, and then you you really have this other cash pay price. So we I'm I, I my our general recommendation is not to have a discounted cash price. 
our recommendation is to have one price, but then when it comes to people who are willing to pay in, in, in cash, you can look at what, what can you do, what can be done to apply um, a, a potential discount lawfully to that. So here in California, for example, we have something called the prompt pay discount, um, and that is a mechanism that people can use to within very specifically spelled out in California law to give a discount to people out of recognition that they're paying right away. So technically the, the insurance company, but the documentation has to reflect that the, the price, the, the, the official like, you know, rack rate price that's being billed to insurance and to cash pay patients should always be the same price. It's just that you can apply, you, like every kind of pricing, you can always apply discounts for particular things that are permitted by law. But you got to, again, that's an area where you got to be careful because not every state is as, as uh, reasonable as California on that issue. Sure. And something on the travel we should probably clarify for people. Is there anything around like distance or type of transportation um, that falls under the, the legal purview? Yeah. So so California was, was you know, ever, again, different rules, different states. But California um, create, you know, under the uh, under the new bill um, allows for payment for um, flights as long as you buy a round trip ticket and people uh, assume responsibility for 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 for, for the cost of flights. Um, and then I believe it's 250 miles under the California bill uh, was the final amount that people are allowed to, um, to, to provide transportation to programs. Um, and that we've seen some flexibility. This is a place where, you know, Medicare used to have a rule. Medicare has a rule that in general you can cover, providers can cover transportation costs up to, as long as they don't promote, you know, aren't using it as like a marketing device, they can cover transportation up to uh, 25 miles and I believe it's 50 miles in rural areas. But California decided to extend that significantly to, um, uh, to you know, in, in the um, uh, addiction treatment context. All right. And then what about patient brokering and kind of some of the shifts we see in the business model there? So, you know, we're seeing people that, you know, maybe pay someone on a salary, but then, you know, if they don't bring in a certain number of admissions, they're fired, you know, in short order. Right. So so it was the, the big I mean, the biggest legal shift that we saw in um, the last uh, two years was uh, in, in the fall of 2018 with the passage, the federal passage of um, ECRA, the Eliminating Kickbacks and Recovery Act. And that was really significant because it basically was a federal law that applied to all um, insurance uh, covered services for patient brokering. And, it, and, it, it, and so, um, so the, the general, it basically kind of aligned the standard with uh, very closely with the existing Medicare rules. So um, in, in a nutshell, um, you know what it what it what it says is that if you're going to have somebody who's marketing, uh, they need to be marketing under a written contract. They can't it has to be a written contract for a term of a year. It has to spell out very precisely what exactly they're doing, how much time they're spending. It cannot in any way be a payment for uh, uh, based on the value or the volume of referrals. It's it has to be a fixed amount that they're receiving. For fair market, that, that, that's fair market value, meaning the person's getting paid at a rate that's uh, commensurate with the value of their time. So, if if there's a, a sal- if there if this person is providing like a, you know, entry level marketing service, you look to what entry level marketers are being paid more broadly, and we have a lot of that data. And it has to be commercially reasonable, which means you look at it from the opposite side. Would other like addiction treatment programs hire somebody? You know, with for this uh, for this amount of compensation in the absence of a guarantee of referrals. So, so you know, you can still so you can hire people to to do marketing as long as they're being paid on those principles. They're not being it's not you know you're not they're not committing to 
give you any kind of minimum level of patience. You're you're paying them at, at, at reasonable uh, rates for the effort and not for the results. Um, we're still seeing a lot of people who are trying to you know trying to figure out how to how to game this uh, this system and create ways to uh, create you know compensation that's tied to the volume of patients. Uh, but but that those are the basic that's the general. Uh, uh, framework and and frankly we haven't even seen uh, my sense at least in terms of uh, what we see in the marketplace is we have barely even gotten going on the prosecutions for patient brokering um, there have been a few but they've they've been relatively if you compare the volume of urine drug testing fraud cases you know which have been going on for 11 years now versus the uh, uh, patient brokering cases I, my view is we're in the you know we're in like the the seventh inning or eighth inning of the lab cases and we're in the very barely in the first inning of the of the patient brokering cases. So I think that's going to be the the big uh, uh, government push of the next decade. And then closely related, what about paying for calls or more specifically sometimes paying for timed calls or insurance screen calls? Yeah. So you know it's interesting. There, this isn't really complicated subject because. There has been some guidance that you can have, you know, you can you can have um, uh, lead generation services where you pay, you know, what, you, what you're not allowed to do is pay for the, the, the government view that's expressed in some of the Medicare opinions is that when, when you have, uh, you know, either unqualified or lightly qualified leads that are being provided, you know, you're, you have a call center and you're just doing it, uh, um, you're spending, a, you're paying for a certain level of service, then those can be legitimate services. Um, what gets to be a problem is if you highly once you you know once you you get enough information from a lead about their insurance coverage, then you can really turn them into something that looks a lot more like a referral. So you can actually take something that you could have legally sold uh, a lightly qualified or unqualified uh, a prospect, and you turn them into a qualified lead that's a guaranteed patient for this particular facility. And that's a uh, and that's a problem to sell that because that that you're now you're now you're really um, brokering a patient, and so um, it's a it's a tricky area. We we see a lot of um, um, uh, centers that are not doing things the way they should, um, but I still think that this that that those are there is there is a right way to do um, to do the to do calls to run call centers, and um, uh, and I think it's it just it means going back to much more of this, uh, you know, prospect generating uh, uh, services rather than, um, you know, basically converting somebody into a patient that you can send to this facility. You might get more money for the for the latter, but you, you, you can't legal you can only legally do the former. Yeah. Well, what about the timing aspect of it? So, you know, we see a lot. We get notifications all the time like, hey, you know, we're selling timed calls, you know, two minute calls, five hundred dollars. Um, anything specific on that? Um, you know, it's no, there's nothing. So the government, you're allowed to, this whole idea that you're allowed to charge for effort, uh, a lot, you know, it, it's, it makes those, it, there's nothing per se illegal about chi- timing for a charge for a, um, for, for a, uh, a fixed time, fixed charge for a fixed call without a guarantee, uh, of a referral. So, uh, on, on the face of it, it is, um, it, it, that's a promising way to do things. Um, you just got to be careful to make sure that that there isn't really that it's not just a coded way of delivering referrals, because um, I can tell you from having done a lot of case of criminal investigation, defense work, and 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 uh, um, advisory work that they, you know, the government can cut through what's really going on very very quickly, and uh, all the pretty documents in the world aren't gonna 
don't really hide uh, uh, the reality. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of been my feeling. And, you know, just kind of connecting to the overall conversation, you know, it's a temporary solution. It's, it's people trying to get around the laws, right? And eventually the laws will close up or they're going to view it, you know, as the fact that you were trying to get around the law. And so you're going to get prosecuted anyway, you know, but it just plus at the end of the day, like if you can't generate your own calls <laughs> and if people don't want to call your facility, like if they have to be kind of like cajoled or they have to be kind of hoodwinked into calling you, you probably don't have the best business in place anyway. Yeah, 100 percent. There's nothing people having a real brand that people uh, that people refer to you, that people um, call you directly, is is, is what it's all about. Um, yeah, I agree with you. That there's all all the the online tricks in the world are. First of all, I think they're I think they're only going to last so long, and 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 they just are uh, they're a band aid. Yeah, it, absolutely. Um, so uh, you come on that. So sometimes we'll get the comment that hey, you know, we didn't know. <laughs> so is that a legal defense in any way, shape, or form that you didn't know the law? <laughs> so no, not knowing that something is illegal is never a uh, a valid defense. Um, you know, there are cases where you you can advice of counsel. Your lawyer told you to do it. Is maybe every once in a while, but um, uh, usually that also is, is, is has uh, doesn't ever seem to align because if uh, if you really told told the lawyer everything, you you wouldn't have gotten the particular advice. But but definitely having your head in the sand is never going to be. Um, an acceptable answer, and um, you know what? What my advice to people is: the be- if you if you w- wake up to the fact that you did something wrong proactively, or that if you if you identified it before the government found you and you corrected it, you're in the best possible position because there's always going to be people who are just going to keep doing whatever they're doing that's illegal until the until they're forced to stop, and and those are the people that the government's going to go hard after. Um, and the people who, who self-identify, self-correct, you know, it doesn't mean you're always completely scot-free, but you're, you're going to have a much better time of, uh, of resolving the issue. Yeah. And then, you know, like you said, there are cases where people just didn't know and they figure it out and they want to make sure that they do it the right way. So if they've discovered that they were doing something wrong, you know, what, what's your advice on changing that? Do they need to self-report? Do they just need to make the changes? You know, it's, I, I would you, you, you never want to self-report without speaking to a lawyer and getting some advice. Um, I would say that um, there are there are some cases where, you know, either there, it's, there's a clear cut legal responsibility to, to report something or. Um, there's, we, you, you know, it's all, uh, almost inevitable, but I'll be honest. I would say that in a, in a majority of cases, our advice, our advice, and you know, it's, it's always situation specific, but ends up being that the best thing to do is to make a cor- clear correction of the problem, but not necessarily to self-identify. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, our system doesn't always have, um, great, you know, specific, uh, um, you know, that's not always the best approach. Sometimes you can actually create more problems, but I, it's situation specific and definitely that's a, that's something to call a lawyer about. Yeah. Well, really appreciate all the information here. Uh, I mean, great. And a lot of stuff that providers need to be knowing. Um, so any final thoughts, uh, before we kind of wrap things up? I just, I would say, you know, we're in a fat, the pace of change seems to keep quickening. I thought that before COVID, I think uh, the current crisis, COVID-19 crisis, has even accelerated that as we've seen the move to telehealth. And I, I, I just think, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of opportunity, uh, but also a lot of danger. So it's really a, a time to take a hard look at not just your own program, but what's happening in the marketplace and uh, 
um, yeah, that, that would be my, if I had one piece of advice, I just think we're going to, you know, there's going to be some, some, some head snapping um, by how quickly things uh, change. And, and I just uh, want to, I want to see good treatment providers, you know, survive and thrive um, in, in, uh, in the new normal. And uh, I hope that's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, I mean, the expertise is invaluable that you've got. You've got so much experience in the field, so much work with providers big and small across the country. So if people do want to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way to do that? So uh, you can you can find me on um, uh, my the law firm website, NelsonHardeman.com or at HarryNelson.com. Uh, and uh, I, yeah, I'm happy to be a resource. And uh, Nick, I really appreciate what you're doing and and the chance to uh, talk to you today. Well, thanks so much, Harry. Again, it was great having you on. I appreciate it, everyone. Uh, we will see you guys next time.